from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Eh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I you mean, are. No, no. You've I got don't. a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, your vision of reality is not necessarily what my vision of reality is. I was just aesthetically enraptured. Finally, uh, it worked out. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Sometimes I feel as though half the writers I know were once students of John McPhee. The best piece of writing advice that John McPhee ever gave me was to be clear, and that it was better to be clear than to be clever. But if you could be clear and clever, that was best of all. Good writing is rewriting. Good writing is good thinking. Good thinking is rethinking. One of the things he would always say um, to me in, in the margins of my papers when I turned them in, if I'd gotten too kind of flamboyant and loosey-goosey, is he would write, sober up. That's Joel Achenbach, who writes for The Washington Post. Before him, the author and artist Jenny Price, and Rick Stengel, the former editor of Time magazine and former undersecretary of state. John McPhee is particularly well-known for his extremely long, rich, enlightening articles about nature, such as Encounters with the Archdruid and the Pine Barrens and Coming into the Country. He's been writing for a half century for The New Yorker magazine, more than 100 articles so far. Those pieces have transmuted into a couple of dozen books, and he won a Pulitzer Prize along the way. He's also been teaching students at Princeton since 1975 and has inspired and shaped generations of writers. Here is the author Jenny Price again. He would bring in maybe his third or fourth draft of something that had been published and was wonderful and, you know, maybe won a Pulitzer Prize. And it was just black. Everything was crossed out and scribbles, you know. And then he would show you this succession of drafts until he finally got to a clean page, you know, many, many drafts later. You have to understand how emotionally powerful this relationship is with me. I was a 19-year-old kid in his class. He was already a master of nonfiction. You may recognize this voice as David Remnix, the editor of The New Yorker, and yet another McPhee student. And if I could delight him with a sentence or a paragraph, nothing made me happier. One of the obsessions of the class and one of the obsessions of his book is structure. And as he broke it down and he described how he changes tense here and how it all worked, it gave you a sense of possibility. And the analogy I always use is as musicians, that it's true that a beginner can't play an advanced Beethoven sonata. It's just not going to happen. But here are the pieces, here are the elements that go into it. And if you only practice for 1,000 hours or 10,000 hours, you might actually get there. And that's what the course was pointing toward. And now here I am, and he's in his mid-80s, and I'm in my late 50s. I'm editing this magazine, and we have a relationship of pure uh, friendship and, and as colleagues, but humming underneath it. <laughs> so I know who the master is, and he certainly knows who the student is. And now you can get some of John McPhee's tutelage as well without having to attend Princeton University. He has just published a book called Draft Number 4, On the Writing Process. 
and he is here to talk with me about it. John McPhee, a great pleasure finally to meet you and, and welcome you to Studio 360. Hi, Kurt. Hello. Hi. So, are you surprised now that you've had a couple of generations, 40 years for this to people to grow up and do what they do? Are you surprised by who succeeds and, and who doesn't? A little bit sometimes, but usually when they're that age, you just don't know. I mean, you know, David Remnick, people often ask me if I knew – David was very, very good and I'm, I greatly enjoyed him as a student and everything else. But who knows? They're 20 years old. And right. So <laughs> it, it's just pleased is the word, not surprised. Right. But really pleased. I mean, it's amazing what these people do. So, as a young person, when did you first think of yourself as a writer? That that became your self-identity. When I was about eight years old or something like that. I used to be a sort of mascot for the Princeton football team. I grew up here. And I remember a very cold November day that was raining, and I'm on the sidelines of a football game, freezing in this rain and shivering, and I looked up at the press box, and I knew that they were in there with space heaters and a roof over their heads, and so I decided to be a writer. As then you've proceeded to take yourself for weeks and months to Alaska and places like that. I'm not buying yeah. it <laughs> that you wanted a space heater. <laughs> Right. No space heater with me. And so you become a writer, a professional writer. You work at Time magazine. Then when was your first uh, article uh, accepted by The New Yorker? 1963. And that was two years before I became a staff writer there. That article was a what they called a casual. And it was about the experience of playing basketball for Cambridge University. And it was just a small piece that didn't I was working at Time magazine, and this didn't make a big difference. And But when I published a profile in The New Yorker of Bill Bradley two years later, that that's when I joined the staff after that. So the casual had also been about Bill Bradley playing in Cambridge? No, it was about me playing, oh, oh. Me, me playing on the university basketball team over I there. I see. I see. A different Princetonian playing on a different basketball team. That's right. And it just was – that was the first piece in The New Yorker. So you were in your 30s by that point. Yes, I was. I wanted to write for The New Yorker from the time I was, you know, I started 16, 17, 18 years old thinking about it. And, yeah. and all, all through my 20s, I sent them pieces and they turned them all down. I could have papered the wall in my huh. room with rejection slips. And I, and I got one encouraging letter <laughs> and, and so forth. But finally, uh, it worked out when I was 30. One and then 33 when, when I joined the staff. I was in my early 40s before I got a piece published in The New Yorker. So that, I guess I'm 10 years less talented than you or something. You, like no, the longer you wait, the better it is. Is that right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you say in this book that you are shy to the point of dread. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've pulled up, say, in a rented car to some place where somebody is that I'm going to be interviewing. And, and I'm just full of dread. <laughs> and and the thing is that in in my work I tend to spend a long time with people and that that does go away uh, after a day or so. Right. And because you take so long often to write pieces and spend so much time with people and and take a long time writing them, maybe because you're not having to do a news story every two days like a newspaper reporter, your shyness is mitigated. Right. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean I'm full of uh, awe about reporters who can go out interview somebody, write the piece the same day. And, I mean, this, this is just beyond me. See? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I would now love to hear you read a passage uh, from the book. Okay. The approach to structure and factual writing is like returning from a grocery store with materials you intend to cook for dinner. You set them out on the kitchen counter, and what's there is what you deal with and all you deal with. If something is red and globular, you don't call it a tomato if it's a bell pepper. To some extent, the structure of a composition dictates itself, and to some extent it does not. Where you have a free hand, you can make interesting choices. So if nonfiction is like deciding how to make a meal from what's in your grocery bag, you've gone out and got, <laughs> got the stuff. So, uh-huh. so fiction is what, like making a meal, uh, but you forgot to shop for groceries or you just have to sort of summon <laughs> the, the, the ingredients? Well, I don't know. But, but what I imagine is that the fiction writer is feeling her way. I have two daughters who are novelists. Right. And feeling her way and developing structure and stuff in a trial and error fashion moving along. And I'm sure that doesn't describe all fiction, but in nonfiction, you have collected your material first. So you got a different situation at the get-go. Right. I I think that's true. Um, You tell a great story in the book about your teacher in high school who helped you understand structure in in writing. Talk about Mrs. McKee and, and what her English class in the 1940s did for you. A whole hell of a lot. Mrs. McKee, who was also the drama coach, just liked uh, to have her kids writing. And not only that, I mean, three to three compositions a week. And we had to, if it was a poem, you turned it in with a structural outline. It could be anything. They were short. but And she also had us uh, not everybody all at once, but read your piece aloud in class. And the other kids would boo and hiss. and <laughs> it, was, it was a circus. And I just think that, that I really grew as a writer in there far more than I realized at the time. So David Remnick was your student at Princeton, then became a terrific journalist at The Washington Post and then The New Yorker, and is now the editor of The New Yorker, where you're still a writer. So it seems as though you had a master plan to train him and then make him your boss or something. He's my, he is my boss, and this is a bizarre relationship. But, but it's a wonderful, I mean, to go through this arc from William Shawn at the beginning and now The, the, now the, 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 the long-time editor of now, The New Yorker, yeah. Yeah, no, I feel, <laughs> I feel really lucky because of the dialogue with him. It, it's, uh, it, it's really great. Yeah. Um, this book is a is a terrific combination of your memoir as a writer and this useful handbook on on how to write, or at least how to write nonfiction, according to John McPhee. I, and I kept circling and starring various points of your process and rules, if we can call them that, that I would like to go over with you and have, have you explain. First of all, you're, you encourage writers to avoid blind leads. Explain what blind leads are and why they're bad and, and when they're occasionally okay. Well, they're cheap. A blind lead is is simply uh, a piece that starts off with pronouns, he, she, whatever, but does not identify who you're talking about. Right. And then, you know, in sentence numbers seven or ten or something like that, you reveal as if you're pulling a rabbit out of a hat who this person is. Well, that's a pretty tawdry thing to do. (laughs) Yes. But at the same time, it's fun. Yes. I I did that with Sophia Loren. This was a time cover story. And uh, I can't. I don't. I think that may be the only blind lead yeah. I ever did in a, in a long piece. But I tell them, you know, blind leads range from cheap 
to very cheap. Yes. So so ration yourself. Yes. That's no, I, I totally agree. And I was particularly interested in this because in this book I just wrote, one of my chapters has a very, very long blind lead. And I thought, wow, am I cheap? Am I tawdry? And then I decided, no, it was justified in this particular case. Absolutely. Not, nobody should ever tell you not to do that. Just right. don't do it every time out. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, you argue uh, that only the writer should write uh, his or her title or headline. Um, and I guess you get to do that, but that is not standard in American uh, journalism. Is this really a hill that you, you encourage young writers to die on? I think that a, the title is an integral part of the piece of writing. Uh-huh. And therefore, it should be written by the person whose name is the byline. Right. Um, you talk about the tension that always exists in structuring an article between the chronology of then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and and the themes. But those are the basic two ways you can organize a nonfiction piece. But explain, again, with an example, if you would, what that tension is and how that works. I used to teach students that you couldn't write a journey without using a chronological structure. And then, and then I went across the United States with a truck driver, and there was no good way to write that chronologically. It was just, it would be so boring and so expectable. And there are all kinds of themes in the trucking world, truck stops and fuel economy and keep going. And so I threw up my hands and said, okay, I'm going to do a thematic structure and let the reader worry about the chronology. The, the notion of where, where we went was established at the beginning, so any reader would know that this, all this had happened on this long trip. Right. It, well, it was very interesting for me. I'd never thought of writing nonfiction in such a simple way, that this tension between chronology and theme, but that's it. And it was one of the many useful uh, illuminations I received from reading this book. So thank you. You're welcome. After listening to you for all these years, it just amazes me that something's going the other way. Uh, well, you know, that's the beauty of, <laughs> of, of, our, of our respective jobs. Um, yeah. Would you read one more excerpt before we go? Sure thing. In the late 1960s, I was working in rented space on Nassau Street up a flight of stairs over Nathan Casrell Optometrist. Across the street was the main library of Princeton University. Across the hall was the Swedish massage. Operated by an Austrian couple who were nearing retirement and had been there for decades, it was a legitimate business. They massaged everything from college football players to arthritic ancients, and they didn't give sex. This, however, was the era when massage became a sexual synonym, and most evenings, avoiding writing, Looking down from my window on the passing scene, I would see men in business suits stop, hesitate, look around, and then move toward the glass door at the foot of the stairs. Eventually, the Austrians had to scrape the words Swedish massage off the door and replace them with a hanging sign they removed when they went home. Meanwhile, the men kept arriving at the top of the stairs where neither door was marked. When they knocked on mine, and I opened it. Their faces fell dramatically as the busty Swede they expected turned into a short and bearded man. In this context, I wrote three related pieces that became a book called Encounters with the Archdruid. You grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, you teach at Princeton University. You still live in Princeton, New Jersey. Is that because Princeton is the greatest place on earth, or, or, or are you just 
stumbled into that, and it's a nice place to be while you're traveling around the world uh, doing these long journalistic expeditions? Well, first of all, the publisher is in New York, right? And on, I lived in New York for for uh, five years in the, the the first five years I was at Time Magazine, and uh, and when we were looking around for a place to go, and went to Princeton, it was because of the university library here, because of imagining that if I could ever do the work I hoped to do, uh-huh. uh, that li- I, I mean that library would be a great tool. That was the thing that made Princeton the marginal thing that made Princeton more appealing than other suburbs or whatever when we made this move. Right. So, you know, I've lived in Princeton all my life with the exception of those years in the city. But given that your your work takes you all over the place or has taken you all over the place all the time, having that extremely familiar uh, little place must be comforting, reassuring. Right on the nose. And uh, I always looked upon it as a kind of fixed foot, you know, in a, in a compass and you go around. My daughters think I'm provincial and funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's what daughters are there for. That's right. You've got that one right. John McPhee, uh, thank you so much. This has been uh, my complete pleasure. It's been a complete pleasure for me too, Kurt. John McPhee has been a writer for The New Yorker for 54 of its 92 years of existence, and he's a professor of writing at Princeton University. His new book, Draft Number 4, On the Writing Process, is out now. Coming up, critics hate the new Netflix reboot of the sitcom Full House. It's called Fuller House. But B.J. Novak disagrees. It fits in to the original narrative in a way that is just like the shot of sitcom dopamine that everyone wanted from Full House. The great comedy writer and actor sticks up for a sitcom that gets no respect. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. B.J. Novak is best known for writing and acting in one of the great influential comedies of the last 20 years, The Office. Since then, he's been a big deal best-selling author and actor in feature films. But there's a TV show that critics and lots of smart viewers loathe that is one of his favorites. It's a show that a reviewer at the AV Club called a porn parody without the porn. As part of our Studio 360 Guilty Pleasures series, B.J. Novak defends this show in its current Netflix reboot and the original series, which premiered when he was a little kid. I was 9, 10, 11 years old in Newton, Massachusetts, which to me was defined by its winters and uh, gray weather. And to see this Californian utopia, which I didn't even really know about this place. It looked so different. It was so bright. That soaring helicopter shot on a crystal clear day over the Golden Gate Bridge, over the sparkling Blue Bay. This was my introduction to the idea of California. My name is B.J. Novak. I'm an actor and writer. 
and the guilty pleasure I'm here to defend is Fuller House. Fuller House is the Netflix reboot of the much maligned 90s sitcom Full House, starring Bob Saget. Wake up, San Francisco! Dave Coulier. Cut it out! And John Stamos. Have mercy! As three adult men raising three young daughters, played by Candace Cameron. Oh, my Lanta! Jody Sweeten. Well, pin the rose on your nose. And the Olsen twins. You got it, dude! I should explain, I fell in love with sitcoms before knowing that they were supposed to be funny or comedies, and I even wrote a letter to my local TV stations in Boston telling them that they should have more sitcoms on without even knowing that com meant comedy. I just thought these were pleasant shows. I I just liked seeing another family, how they worked, I guess. Hey, hey. Let me take a wild guess. You stopped at the mall after school, huh? We had to buy gifts for Kathy Shower tonight. I didn't need Full House to be a comedy. I just thought it was a great show. Your friend Kathy Santoni is getting married? She's already married. She's having a baby. What? I can't believe that little kid is having a little kid. One of the things that makes a great sitcom is the comforting, reliable aesthetics of sight and sound. We like bright, happy settings flooded with light and possibility. And we like the rhythms of certain sounds, both dialogue rhythms and laughter rhythms. Well, I'm not so sure that you should be allowed in a boy's apartment without some kind of supervision, like an armed guard. Oh, don't worry, T-Bone. I'll be there. That's a comfort. The actors were excellent with timing, and the sound mixing was excellent. It just sounded right. Come on, Dad. It's just a place to hang out. I'll be home at 11, I promise. Okay. You can go, but I want you back at 11 on the dot, okay? okay. <laughs> so that's, that's why I think I was hypnotized by the show as a kid. I don't think I laughed at it, um, but I didn't groan either. I was just aesthetically enraptured. So that's the original Full House. The reboot... ...is the most, you could call it shameless, or you could call it symmetrical reboot that has ever been accomplished. Now it's called Fuller House. DJ, played by Candace Cameron, is now the mom... And she is raising these boys. She is also sadly a widow, just as her father was a widower. My husband died doing what he loved, fighting fires and helping people. He'd want me to be strong. So now she needs to turn to help to uh, two women, her sister, played by Jodie Sweetin. You guys did your share for us. Now it's time for me to step up. And Kimmy Gibbler, her neighbor from growing up. So I'm moving in too. Now these three women have to raise these boys in the exact same house. It, 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 it's the exact same show, and yet it... it fits in to the original narrative in a way that is just like the shot of sitcom dopamine that everyone wanted from Full House. It's kind of stunning in its audacity. Please welcome to the show, John Stamos. When Fuller House debuted, it did not seem to receive much respect, to say the least. Washington Post said there's a point where... Give the guy's name, by the way. You're you're missing the names. All right, Hank Stuber. Okay. There's a point where nostalgia becomes more like necrophilia, and Fuller House immediately crosses that line. 
Uh, New York Times, the series begins as a sitcom family reunion. Mm -hmm. It becomes a self-conscious, dated, and maudlin reminder of the ceaseless march of time and your inevitable demise. <laughs> I think Reboot should continue the joy of the original. And for many projects, repeating it would not continue the joy because what we loved about the original was an unpredictability and a shock. But the opening theme song to Full House begins with the line, whatever happened to predictability? Whatever happened to predictability? So you could say that this was fated, inevitable, that they would come out with a second version of this that was so uh, gloriously embracing the idea of predictability. In fact, the, the whole lyric is... Whatever happened to predictability? Whatever happened to predictability? The milkman, the paperboy. Evening TV. It is nostalgic for a time when TV was predictable. <laughs> it, this is its, its uh, mission statement of the show. I'm not going to convince anyone that if you don't think you'll like Fuller House, you should watch it. That's not the case. If you do feel inclined to watch Fuller House, I'm saying I get it. And I'm there too. And I didn't realize I cared so much until I watched it. <laughs> and I was just right back into that, that wide-eyed kid mode, just like gazing at this golden California world. That story was produced by Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian. Have you got a guilty pleasure? Something you might not even admit to friends, but that you'd be willing to talk about on a national radio program? If so, send a voice memo or an email to guiltypleasures at studio360.org. Frederick Sacker is a Swedish painter who makes these really exceptionally photorealistic pictures. A few years ago, he devised the ultimate test for whether or not his portraits had crossed the uncanny valley. When I paint, I work almost like a copy machine or a Xerox machine. I only look at color and I look at shapes. I almost always paint from a photograph. Uh, I know exactly what to do, and I know exactly where I'm finished. I, I don't really get the artist that sits around and smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and waiting for inspiration to strike. For me, it's very mechanical. Uh, I, I just sit on and work. Painting phases are a bit more difficult than painting like roses or your average still lifes. Although painting realism isn't that hard, uh, I often preach that it's more a technique and everyone could learn to do it. But you need time and you need to be uh, willing to put the effort into it. When people see my paintings, they always say that they look like photographs. And that got me thinking. Could I actually make a photograph out of a painting? My driver's license started to get real shabby and I needed to renew it. So I set up a small photo studio, took a self-portrait, 
And from that I painted an oil painting. Took a little photograph of that and sent it to Transportstyrelsen, AAA in Sweden, I don't know what it's called. They couldn't see it was a painting. There is a guy, there's a Swedish artist, I just love this guy, he's called Frederick Sacker, and he painted the picture for his driving license. So wow. he did a self-portrait, he took a photo of the self-portrait, and he submitted it, and the authorities said, fine. It was not likely I wanted to fool them, it was more like to test myself. For me, I believe uh, my painted portrait is more a resemblance of me than a photograph. The painting itself is titled uh, This Is Not Me, which is a reference to Magritte's This Is Not A Pipe. That painting is a painting of a pipe with the text This Is Not A Pipe. I, I think he nails it right there, and I, and I believe my, my work is a continuing uh, painting of that one. In my family, there is a history of brain-related diseases. Uh, it's all from Alzheimer's. My father died of an aneurysm when I was uh, about 10. Uh, so I know that your, your vision of reality is not necessarily what my vision of reality is. And it could change in a heartbeat. Most people don't look like themselves in the photographs they use on the driver's license. I never met someone that said, oh, I, I look so good and this is really me on my driver's license. So it's more, more me than an actual photo because it's part of me. I try to look extra bad on my photograph. So my, my, my face is blemished and my hair is really bad and I, I didn't shave for two weeks. Uh, so my, my beard is really bushy. Looking back at it, I might have wanted to look a bit better because I got the, all, all the recognition of it and the photo got all, all through the world and I was on TV with it. So it would have been nice to look better on the photo. It would have been. By the way, the Swedish transport agency allowed Frederick to keep his hand-painted driver's license even after they found out about the scheme. I love Sweden. You can see the image for yourself at pri.org slash studio360. That story was produced by Thomas Henley with sound design by Tommy Bazarian. Coming up, terrific pop music from Mali in West Africa. Amadou and Mariam will be right here to perform live in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. Amadou Bagayoko and Mariam Dumbia met 40-odd years ago when they were students at Mali's Institute for the Young Blind. They started performing together in the school orchestra, got married, and since then have made records and performed as a duo all over the world. Toured with U2, worked with Damon Albarn of Blur and the Gorillas, released eight studio albums so far, and been nominated for a Grammy. 
Their new album is called Confusion, and Amadou and Mariam are here in Studio 360 with their interpreter, David Serrero. Thank you so much. Welcome. Merci. One of your first big hits, I think maybe your first really big hit outside of Africa was in 1999, the song Je pense à toi, I think of you. I want to play a little bit of that for our listeners. That's Je Pense à Toi by Amadou and Mariam back in the late 1990s. I love that song, and I wish we could play the whole thing uh, because it's a great example of your signature style of Malian blues. Is that an actual term, Malian blues? Oui, ça peut être correct parce que le blues has not really any boundaries. So nous l'avons aussi au Mali et they have, in a way, blues in Mali also. And because African Americans came from Africa, and therefore the blues are African. Oui, on a toujours, on a toujours dit ça, oui. We always say that. Yeah, that's true. But is there actually a kind of blues tradition, a modern 20th century blues tradition in Mali? Maintenant, il commence à en avoir. Now they start to have a more modern way of doing blues because the musicians are traveling more all over the world. So they bring with them all their influence and there are all this mix of different colors. Gotcha. And the new album, uh, Confusion, has a very different sound. And I want to now introduce our listeners to a song from that, if we may. Our pleasure to play this song for you. Excellent. Bofu safu, e kawari mata ala kola bofu safu, e kawari mata ala kola bofu safu, bofu safu, ni ma kebofu safu ye. Bofu safu, kanake bofu safu ye. Ni ma fe nyi fa flau ye bofu safu, ni
Thank you. That was Amadou and Mariam playing Bofu Safu. Can you, before we go on and talk some more, introduce the other two members of your band? Oui, Charlie, qui joue sur les claviers. There is Charlie on the keyboards. Et il y a Joël qui fait les percussions. There is Joël on the percussions. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, so that song, uh, Bofu Safu, uh, from their new album, Confusion. What a great song. And as I, I this the fourth or fifth time I've listened to it, and every time I've heard it, in my head, I'm imagining the beginning of a movie. It just seems like that should that should start a movie. Effectivement, parce que l'introduction, il peut faire début de film. The intro can definitely be the beginning of a movie. Exactly. No, I, 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 on, on, the, on the recorded version, I thought, oh, it's like in a James Bond movie. Wow. On écoutait aussi James Brown beaucoup. We're listening also a lot of James Brown. And, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, so in figuring out how we were going to talk to you and what we were going to talk to you about and learning more about you, we asked both of you to talk about some of your influences musically. Amadou, you gave us uh, this list of guitarists, very diverse list of guitarists. Uh, John Lee Hooker. And, of course, Jimi Hendrix. B.B. King, whom I saw live at age 16. Jimmy Page, of course, Led Zeppelin. And David Gilmour from Pink Floyd. Three Americans, two Brits. uh, All of them got big and broke out in the 1960s. And and such different types of guitarists. Oui, parce que, en fait... uh so we play a, a lot of a music that we call Bamara, who has a lot in common with this American Britannic music. And Bamara is a is a style or is an individual? No, it's a language. It's a language that is spoken in Mali. No, language also is ethnic. And uh-huh. also an ethnicity also as well. Got you. So what about the bluesman uh, John Lee Hooker? What, was there a particular guitar lick he did that influenced you? 
When he was playing, it sounded a lot like a music Bamara. It was a great pleasure to listen to him, and we were also very surprised. So could you illustrate that? Like, what did Hooker do, and what is a, a Bamara sound? I know that. With the Bamara style. <laughs> and I want to say that uh, on the John Lee Hooker bit, you were accompanied on uh, finger snapping by Mariam. Oui, merci. Mariam, you've said that you were influenced musically by the French uh, singer Sheila. Uh, I want to play uh, a bit of her biggest hit uh, from 1979 called Spacer. He's a ladies' man, always quick with a kiss on the hand, protects the soul, at the rate to answer a So, what do you like about that song, Mariam? Sa voix, c'est tout. Her voice, especially. Sa voix me plaisait beaucoup. J'ai imité Sheila à l'époque quand j'étais petite. When I was a child, I was listening and I was trying to imitate, impersonate the voice of Sheila. Mon surnom était Sheila. Tout le monde m'appelait Sheila. Everybody used to call me Sheila. My nickname was Sheila. Ah, jusqu'à présent, il y a des copines. Even to this day, I have some uh, girlfriends who are calling me Sheila. Right. And Sheila was married to her partner, Ringo. Not not the Ringo of the Beatles, but a French Ringo. Si, c'est vrai. So Amadou is your Ringo at the time? <laughs> he, may be, he may also be Ringo if he agrees. <laughs> Um, I would love to hear another song um, by by you two. Um, what what will you sing and play for us now? Je pense que normalement on doit jouer dimanche à Bamako. So we love to play for you uh, a song that is called Dimanche à Bamako, which is Sunday in Bamako. Sunday in Bamako, where I assume, <laughs> which is the capital of Mali, and where where, where you live when you're in Mali? Oui, c'est là où on, on vit. On vit yes, that's where we live. Surtout les jours de mariage. And this is especially Sunday in Bamako is the day of the weddings. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. So, 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 so. Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage. Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage. Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage. 
Les djembés et les tounous résonnent partout Les balais et les tamans résonnent partout La Koura et le Goni sont aussi au rendez-vous Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage Les parents et les sympathisants sont au rendez-vous Les copains et les voisins sont au rendez-vous Les foulets et les jellies sont aussi au rendez-vous Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage Les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage C'est le jour des mariages. 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 C'est le jour des les dimanches à Bamako, les dimanches à Bamako, les dimanches à Bamako, les dimanches à Bamako, c'est le jour de mariage, c'est le jour de mariage, olé, c'est le jour de mariage. That is Amadou and Mariam playing Dimash Abamako, Sunday in Bamako, uh, off their album of 2005. Uh, that album you made along with, you collaborated with the French, Spanish, whatever else artist, speaking of No Frontiers, uh, and producer uh, Manu Chao. Uh, what, what was that experience like? We loved Donc, his music and his voice. Pour travailler ensemble, c'est lui qui a mis dans les journées qu'il aime travailler avec nous. He, uh, Manu Chao mentioned the idea that he would love to work with uh, us. And then after he went to Mali, and this is where we did the songs. Uh huh. And and w these for the last twenty years, all kinds of musicians from Europe and the United States have wanted to work with you. Are you open to collaborations, or are you careful about who you choose? We are open to work with everybody because we love to mix things. 
I, I hear it. Well, uh, it's been a complete pleasure meeting you both and seeing you both and having you both play here. And before we let you out of here, we'd love you to play one more song. Uh, and this will be which? Philo Bessame. Philo Bessame, oui. And, and what's this song about? C'est hommage au Peul. Il y a le Peul partout. It's about uh, an ethnicity that is called the Pearl, and the Pearl, we can hear them, we can see them in several countries in, in Africa. All over West Africa. All over West Africa. <laughs> Excellent. Let's hear it. On y va. Allez-y. Show, 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 show. That's Amadou and Mariam playing Filao Besame. Their new album, Confusion, will be out on September 22nd. And that's it for this week's episode of Studio 360. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Claude Gallette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank that you. Was great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, really Thank you very much. C'est vraiment un grand plaisir. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, when colorful cartoons are off color. You always hear about mass shootings affecting other people's movie openings, but you never think they're going to affect your movie opening. If it's humans doing it, live action, you kind of don't like those people, but when it's like a cute pink cat, it feels a little lighter. Kurt Anderson talks with BoJack Horseman creator Raphael Bob Waxberg. That's next time in Studio 360.